people are afraid of such raw emotion. And I'm afraid of raw emotion, but I know I'm human and I I don't show all those things to everybody all the time. But I have learned that there are things like you cannot control. And that's a good thing. The problem is is when we don't let ourselves feel it and resist it and shame ourselves or push it down because it's too scary, it actually is supposed to be that big. Hey there. Today's conversation is a weighty one, and it's also an important one. So please take care of yourself as you listen. Today's conversation is about grief notably the grief experienced when you are bereaved by suicide. We'll cover more than just my guest's grief story, but her survivor story and how she moves and leads through this loss is a part of her story and her life in all the spaces she leads. So why is this complicated conversation important for you to listen to today? Because your relationship with grief impacts all of your relationships, whether you know it or not. And while the experience of grief is universal, we still react to grief in ways that often stigmatize and alienate our grief or the grief of others in the name of professionalism, boundaries, or self-protection. And as a leader, you need to learn how to befriend all kinds of grief and loss so that when its waves show up, and they regularly will, you can respond in ways that support healing and connection instead of isolation and shame. And one of the ways that we can befriend grief and all it brings up in us to make space for the stories of others to touch our hearts. Not as voyeurs or consumers, but as humans, connecting with other humans. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and how they become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Hilary McBride wrote in her beautiful book, The Wisdom of Your Body, Healing, Wholeness, and Connection Through Embodied Living, quote, we heal when we can be with what we feel, unquote. And when we can be with what we feel, We don't fear our feelings or the feelings of others. (laughs) Now, this doesn't mean that we relax about emotions or feeling emotions is a cakewalk. (laughs) Nope, not at all. But when we can be less protected and armored up, this means we can feel without shutting down or harming ourselves or others in the presence of difficult emotions. And I know this can feel like a tall order with everything we carry these days especially when it feels like a fire hose of intensity from within, along with individuals and systems who keep causing harm and doing things that bring up so much grief, rage, and pain. And since I suspect most of you were taught that feelings made you weak or were necessary to exile to survive, it makes sense that the reflex to reject feeling through discomfort shows up regularly. So when we face a loss from suicide and all the layers and nuances of this particular type of loss, it can bring up a lot for us and those we lead. Now, disenfranchised grief refers to a loss that's not openly acknowledged, nor is it socially mourned, nor is it publicly supported. 
So you could see how bereavement by suicide would fit one of the most common causes of disenfranchised grief. And when people who have lost someone to suicide feel like they cannot talk about their loss without judgment or criticism, disenfranchised grief festers. And it can lead to complicated grief, which is where our recovering and healing becomes more persistent and debilitating to function on basic day-to-day tasks over a long period of time. And I regularly see how the deep discomfort, shame, and stigma associated with suicide can make it difficult to discuss. (laughs) It is complicated. When you experience bereavement by suicide, you often feel isolated at a time when you carry such deep hurt. Even if you have strong support networks, you can still feel alone because you may worry if you share your true feelings. You fear the impact on others, mainly if you're in a caring role for those who are also experiencing the loss. Now, in writing for this show, which is wild, I I realized I'd become disconnected from my own bereavement by suicide experience when a family member died by suicide. Gosh, it's a little over 20 years ago now. I was in my second year of grad school when I heard the news, and I was in the throes of a big project slash presentation thing, and I was slated to present in front of my class the next day. So I called my professor and told him about the loss my family had just experienced and asked if I could reschedule my presentation. I just needed a minute to catch my breath and to orient. I was still in shock as the echoes had stirred up so much in my system about my family. (laughs) Now my professor initially told me he could not reschedule because everyone else had to honor their date. They showed up for their scheduled date. So, you know, I had, you wanted me to do the same. And so I hung up and was in even more shock. Now, to his credit, he later called back apologizing and offered to work with me to reschedule my presentation. But in hindsight, as I reflect on this, this reflex of keeping business as usual and missing the mark on an opportunity for empathy and compassion when grief shows up is not uncommon. And I believe rooted in our low capacity for discomfort intersects with grind culture and the incessant uh, pressure to work and be productive. Now, on today's show, you'll hear from someone I've known for, gosh, over two decades, who has consistently and steadfastly led with transparency and authenticity, no matter what has showed up in her life. Kathy Escobar is co-founder of The Refuge, a healing community a social action space, and a creative collaboration space in North Denver, Colorado. She's also a pastor, a writer, a spiritual director, a podcaster, an advocate, and an author of several books, including Practicing, Changing Yourself to Change the World, and Faith Shift, Finding Your Way Forward When Everything You Believe is Coming Apart. Now pay attention to when Kathy talks about the split we create inside of us, when we experience grief. And notice when Kathy identifies the connection of our ability to integrate grief into our experiences as a measure of our ability to be more human with each other. And listen for Kathy talking about how shame shows up with grief, especially in bereavement by suicide. Now, please welcome Kathy Escobar to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Kathy 
Welcome to the show. Oh, I'm so happy to be with you. Thinking of two decades when I first met you is just wild. Time is so weird. I know. We've lived a lot of life, right? (laughs) We've lived a lot of life. And I've been wanting to have you on the show actually since I thought of this podcast. You were on my original list. And um, I, I, you know, the topic that we're going to dive in today is grief. There are many things that you can talk to. And I think they'll weave into our conversation today. Um, But you didn't look to become an expert in this topic. Um, An expert maybe is not even the right word. You didn't learn to be so familiar with it. And you've befriended it um, as as a means of survival. And before we get into some of these nuances of your relationship with grief and your story, I'd love for you to share how you define grief. Well, for me, it's interesting because I don't probably give language to it all the time. But I think if I, you know, just kind of off the top of my head is that grief to me is that all the feelings, all the emotions, all the body embodied stuff in our bodies and spiritually kind of a soulful parts of us, it's response to loss. It's there whether you say it or not, whether you notice it or not. But it's like, and it's not just one part of us. It's like all those three like core parts of our our experience as humans. Mind, body, and soul. And, and relational too, right? We experience it in community also, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And you've been in community and doing all kinds of work um, with communities uh, since I've known you. And I'm wondering how this definition that you just shared, how has that evolved over time? Well, the biggest part for me, I mean, I've worked in the trenches of people's real experiences for, you know, several decades and really creating pockets for healing community that always started with our real stories, uh, no matter what those were. Because the truth is, there's not a lot of spaces, actually, to be able to share in community and And the 12-step model, that's one of the reasons it's so good, is it's literally a one-hour circle to just be honest with other people Mm. who are being honest, too. And that the healing that comes out of that is like, it's not formulaic, you know? It's just get a framework and these things happen if you can create a safe enough container. So that was always my work. And I had had losses in my life, in my childhood, loss of innocence, you know, loss of protection and safety and some really core things that I, that's actually when I first met you, was some of the things that I was really working on. And then has have just always held space for honesty. So I hadn't lost a parent. I hadn't lost a significant person in my life. None of those things when I was holding space for other people. But I did understand loss and honesty that comes from honoring Mm. and owning and um, integrating and metabolizing loss. So that was always in my experience. But I can say that for the most part, it's not that it was only for other people, but it was kind of more for other people um, than me. And unfortunately, part of our family story in 2019, our youngest son died by suicide. We have five children, four living. And that devastation um, of really, you know, you're a parent, you know, people listening, 
no, like it is the worst possible thing for a parent. And it happened. And we are in mental health. Like our work is in mental health. It's a long, complicated story, but I can say that mm-hmm. it's a story that is, um, it wasn't, it was really out of the blue. <laughs> it was. And that has its complications. And it's so easy, like even people talking about these things, you know, well, you should have known, you could have known, you could have done that. You know, there's those things exist in the oh, story. Yeah. And yeah, that's just what we know our story. But I will say that was when we all, all of us, so six of us, my four living kids, my husband and myself, we just entered into a whole horrible reality of grief was going to be part of our lives in a new way. And my dad had died the year before. He actually died in the room that I'm joining you from. And we cared for him for four and a half months in hospice. Totally different form. Like he was ready to go. We were sad. And, you know, I could feel some of the feelings of loss, but it just was so completely different. And, but we had a teeny bit of practice on speaking openly about, in my dad's situation, death and our experience with it. So we had a little bit of practice. Nothing fully prepares you for such a, like the deepest wound as parent and as a family. And I think for us, we just basically agreed together that we were going to tell the truth. And that's hard. And I'm going to name this about suicide. There's a lot of shame that surrounds suicide. I'm, you know, I'm a pastor leader talking about honesty and all these things. And my, my kid died by suicide and it's hard sometimes to make sense of. And it's, it would have been really easy for me to push away from the table. It would have been really easy for my kids to withdraw from certain things. My husband to be off work for an extended period of time, like things that kind of can happen out of survival and our survival was telling the truth to each other and to ourselves and to the people in our lives. And I am really grateful it helped us, but it's hard. You know, people really aren't used to talking very openly about grief. And even to coming today, you know, I was like, ah, (laughs) talk about grief. Ah." But the truth is, is that I like to, and I, I, I love it and I hate it. Because I hate that this art is our story, but I love that you're creating a space to own that is part of the human experience and we need to do better at it. Well, it's one of those topics I bring back on the show regularly because I'm just sitting here thinking about your commitment to honesty about your story. Even prior to this horrible loss, you you had that muscle built going into this. It didn't take away the exquisite pain, but it it helped you move through it as a family and in your own story. And I'm just sitting here thinking about even in my own grief, like we all have grief stories, whether we know it or not. And are there spaces where I'm just honest about my grief in the moment, my loss in the moment that I don't filter? And I'm like, I don't think so. I mean, maybe there's a couple people that I can just pop in, you know, a good friend on Voxer or my husband you know, at the right time when the kids aren't around. And I, we filter so much of our 
honest experiences and with grief, but a lot of things. It's really to have that practice of really practicing being true means we have to also be honest with ourselves and really know what we're feeling and how we want to communicate it, when we want to communicate. There's a lot, but I filter a lot and I know we all do. And I want to get more into some of the things that you wrote, especially after the loss of your son. But but before we transition to that, I, I'm curious about how your relationship with grief has impacted how you lead in the spaces and the communities that you're a part of. I personally am very grateful for the refuge community because it's a community that has always had honesty and pain and real stories embedded in it. And even though I couldn't connect with personally in my own exact experience with other people's stories of grief, uh, was always present that people struggled and that people were trying to make it through the day and people could share some of the real feelings. And for sure, talking about shame, fear, anger, you know, what the fuck, those kinds of things that were real, like in the communication of people's real stories. Like that's what people would say. I'm just thinking about this because I could hear some people say, oh, you know, that's great for Kathy and the spaces she leads to have honesty. But, you know, at school, at, at work, at the dinner table, nah. Yeah. You know, that that's 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 a recovery community. So those folks need to be really mm-hmm. honest. But I don't know if we need that kind of honesty in other spaces like that. Not like that. What would you say in response to that? Well, what I suspect would be a pretty common objection. <laughs> oh, I've been hearing this for decades. And so it's exact. I mean, I know those words very familiar. Uh, I think what I would say to it is that the reason why we need to find ways to do it in our workspaces, we need to find the ways to do it in schools, in our families, in our churches and faith spaces, whatever it is, is because it's happening for everybody. Everybody is experiencing these things of the realities of grief, some form of grief, since that's kind of the thing that's on the table right here in this conversation. So everyone is experiencing it. It's the loss of people, loss of dreams, loss of health, loss of security, loss of relationship, all the losses. And so it's happening anyway. And so why do we have it segmented into this very small place um, in the world when you talk about how many people, which is universally, that why can't we have it more integrated into all areas of our lives? And I do respect that there's jobs to do. There's things, you know, we can't sit around all day (laughs) and be processing our feelings. And that's actually not at all what I'm talking about. It's It's places to do that, but it's actually places to have our real lives be on the surface and out in part of everything instead of having us managing it on our own, usually not well, and then not modeling for other people or giving them space to be when our, you know, our coworkers, our employees, our kids, like everybody's living it. So in my opinion, greater health in our systems is what's needed. And so our systems are where we operate in. And we, in my opinion, I feel really strongly about this. 
the refuge ethos is the refuge ethos. So it's going to maybe look different, but all the systems that I'm aware of should at least be able to do some of the basic, healthier, ongoing things of the human experience because humans are in those systems. Absolutely. And so you're not saying every space has, because like, oh, you know, Kathy, Kathy's a pastor and a helping professional. You know, I, I do therapy and coaching. That's for us. We're not asking everybody to do that. You're saying creating spaces where folks don't have to hide their real life experiences doesn't mean they get have to process it 24-7 and wherever they're at. It's just being able to be honest about their life experience. Is that correct? Or correct me if there's yes, elaborate on that. That's correct. Okay. And so I just think that is a very sad state of affairs that we have to basically create mm-hmm. a split inside of us. We have to do show one thing to in these spaces. And then we have this whole other thing going on inside that we're trying to manage and find our way through. And that what that does create is what splits and divides create. And that's not a holistic, whole, healthy thing. It's a divided thing. And then we're confused because we're we're like, which part of this? Oh, that part's going to come out. You know, all these things. And I think the part that I'm mm-hmm. passionate about in all areas is just trying to just practice saying some of the simplest things and have that be more normalized. For example, you know, and just working with people, like sometimes it's like the coworkers don't know that people are walking through their spouses battling cancer and it's really, really hard. And I don't want to say it because I don't want them to pity me. I don't want them to think that I'm not doing my job good. You know, I just, I don't want to have to talk about it. I just want to like, and I, and you know, my take on that is it's okay to not talk about it. There are places it's nice to not have to think about it, but it's consuming a lot of you. So could we just practice saying, Hey, when I'm here, it's really good for me just to do my job. But it's, I just want you to know that I am navigating this. It's hard for me right now. That's actually all I'm proposing on honesty in some of these spaces. And they don't, it doesn't happen as much as it could. No. And, and I'm thinking why another reason why I probably edit, and I know a lot of other people edit and hold back on being totally honest is because of how people respond. Even when that boundary is set, when other people are hurting, it brings up, uh, you know, like we we change how we interact. And so some people are like, I don't want to say what's going on because I don't want anyone to look at me differently, to treat me differently. So there's, I'm kind of sitting here with this going, it's not just us being owning, being honest about our stories. It's we as a as you know, whatever system we're in as a collective, we need to do a better job just going, okay, thanks. Yeah. And not having to go into fixing or managing our discomfort in ways that make things awkward or end up doing harm to somebody else unintentionally. So I'm just thinking about this is like, so that, that protection is not sharing your stories part in part because other people don't know how to respond when ish is happening. <laughs> right? It's so hard. And that is so real. And we've all been in situations. I mean, all of us <laughs> yeah. are pretty decent list, you know, of weird things that people have said to me. But I think the truth is, is that 
we do need to practice it. And the only way to learn things, I'm a big fan of practicing, is that the only way to learn things is to actually do them and then live with learning to do better. And and that's why I'm also a fan of 12-step model because in 12-step recovery, we do learn how to truly just say, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. That's it. I want to shift to something you wrote and you and I, you and I honor a tradition um, around the Easter holiday. You know, there's kind of like these days leaning leading up to it, and you know, there's like the Monday Thursday, and then there's Good Friday, and then there's Saturday. Doesn't really have a name, and then Easter Sunday. And you know, within that whole realm, there's lots of different ways of celebrating. But I've come to really love Saturday, like the in between. I actually really. Don't I don't I don't want to say I don't like Sunday anymore, but I kind of like sunrise service and then move on. Like I feel like Friday and Saturday just need a little bit more of a beat these days. <laughs> but this in between, and you wrote a post about like that in between of Saturday. And I'd I'd love for you to read. I I shared an excerpt with you. I'd love for you to read this excerpt and I just have a follow-up question after you're done reading this excerpt. Sure. Um, so I, I wrote this. Um, I feel a mix of, oh my God, I have been talking about grief for three and a half straight years. And the last thing everyone needs is one more post about it. That reflex resistance is part of the problem, though. We need to bravely integrate real, raw responses to losses. Loss of people, faith, health, relationships, dreams, innocence into our everyday lives. And the only way we can do this is by refusing to let it remain submerged. It's part of the human experience. We all process differently and there is no one right way to grieve. This Holy Saturday, 2023, these four simple words come to mind yet again. Grief has no rules. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I I read that several times and just kind of meditated on that. And I'm wondering what is at stake if we let grief, as you said, remain submerged? What's at stake for us? I think that what's at stake for us is being disconnected from ourselves and from other people ultimately, like that is what's at stake. Um, And that disconnection, you know, gives us all kinds of other trouble. (laughs) And so we find other ways to cope with the pain, we find ways to protect ourselves or to keep people at distance to keep it, you know, compartmentalized, like, it's just that part, it just truly will find its way out. And when we disconnect from it, we actually, uh, it comes out in all these sideways ways. That don't create connection. Yeah. You know, overeating, isolation, trying, you know, binge watching TV to completely check out. And I'm not talking about healthy ways of coping. And that's why Grief House No Rules, that was something that came to me early on after losing Jared. And that's a hashtag that I've used and just like it has guided us because the other part about grief in all these ways is that there's no one way to do it. So like what is healthy and, and uh, in aligned for me and my values is totally different than somebody else's. When I'm speaking, I'm really just talking about my experience and I do feel confident Mm -hmm. in 
the systems do need to become healthier, which is part of your work. So, and I think integrating grief and real people's experiences, we need to get better at humaning together. So I'm going to hold to that. But related to grief, I just say it has no rules. So sometimes binge watching TV, you know, for three days is part of what we need to do. But the truth is, is that we know when it's coming out sideways because we feel terrible. And Mm. the feeling is actually not the grief. It's not the loss. It's the shame or the disconnection or the other things on top of it. And so the pain, you know, it's like really like metabolizing the pain, the loss, the grief is the path forward. And, uh, and I think that that piece is what we want to avoid because that's human nature. So we find ways to cope. So that's what I mean by sideways and a little bit of just learning how to be more direct. And we're just indirect all the time because it's scary. (laughs) And I know, I mean, everything I say, I'm practicing too. I mean, I know the feeling, but I, I Mm. trying, we're trying to practice not holding back to protect other people. We do hold back to protect ourselves sometimes out of health. And that's a healthy thing. I'm not saying you go around, you know, telling everybody everything, but I am saying, I know when I'm, I'm restricted and divided. And I know when I am as honest and whole and just what I always say is it's just the truth. So why can't we just the truth? truth. It's just the truth. So can I just tell the truth? And the truth is a lot of the world doesn't really love the truth. And so, and then we don't love to tell it because it's super painful. I mean, I hate coming here and telling you that my kid died by suicide. It sucks, but it's true. Mm. Kathy, how has you embracing kind of this mantra of grief has no rules helped you navigate the shame that you so kind of beautifully know? It's, it, I mean, grief has its own exquisite tenderness. It's It's hard to describe. It's a clarity and a searing pain. But how has grief having no rules helped you navigate the shame that comes in and tells you what you should or shouldn't do? Or who do you think you are to, to be leading this community to, to, to parenting, to helping others to be in recovery, all those things? How has that helped you navigate when shame arises? Well, like you, I mean, I've been working on shame my whole life. So, you know, it was always present. I didn't really know how to name it. And then a big chunk of years again, it was released in that season that I met you. It was before then, before I met you, but a chunk of years before I met you. So long time, long time, um, 30 years. And so shame is a good, easy reflex for me in general, nothing to do with death. Um, and lost the way that I have experienced it. But um, I did address, I mean, I'm a fan of therapy. I'm a fan of creating space, healing, you know, support groups, recovery. I go to meetings twice a month. You know, like I am a fan of being in those spaces because they help me. But I did get an amazing somatic outdoor therapist when Jared died. 
and to just only work on that. Like, that's what I did. And she said something. Of course, she was like the part. If he had died any other way, I would feel the grief. No question. My husband always says that he's gone. No matter how it happened, he's gone. And that's what we have to do. But I do have an extra layer of shame about suicide. And, and so, um, he, she helped me with this because I really, you know, I was very present when I had a little more space. You can't do it all at once. So it took time, but I really saw how, how it was really paralyzing me, inhibiting my voice at all. And just a lot of things that were really, really tricky. And she said something and it will live with me for the rest of my life is she talked about how shame is a false sense of control. I had never heard that. I mean, I'd done Brene Brown, you know, all the things for so long. I had never heard it this way. She actually told it to me very early on and I didn't register. And then when I had more room, I was able to really get it. And that was everything because it was my way of staying in control to to not feel the magnitude of your child, my child dying by suicide. And so it's a way to like cope. The shame is a false sense of control. And so whatever that did in me, it really has helped me. It does not mean I don't feel shame. It doesn't mean that when I show up here, it crosses my mind. You know, it doesn't mean any of that. But something really shifted in that department that it is a false sense of control. And because I believe fully in trying to let go of the things that are unhealthy, that hinder connection with myself, with other people, with um, my work and vocation, you know, all of those things, like I was committed to working on a false sense of control. And so I've been working on shame. So part is walking into rooms and telling the truth. Part is just showing up. I mean, you know, it's tough to do, to show up when you know that people know this about you. And, you know, because I don't talk about it every second of every day, but it's like a public story. And, and then just like be in my body and let go of controlling myself and my narrative about who I am and then also um, controlling what my is the way of like trying to explain that was the other thing I'm going to say too about grief and our story at least and I still do tend to want to tell people certain things about it but I have held back a lot and just said it and let it sit and said it early on in grief I would try to like say all the story every time And that is a way actually to manage my shame because it was like, okay, if I could just give them all the facts, then I wouldn't be a bad family and a bad, you know, the the horrible things that we think about ourselves. And so learning to just say what I need to say and let people figure it out. I know that's that's a piece of all of this, honestly, in leadership and in grief and in shame work, you know, at all. It's like, we just have to like, let it drop in to us. And 
the ripples will, some will work and some won't because some people don't like it. They like it when we're in shame and they like it when we're not telling the truth and we like it when we're not so honest. But um, we know that we have to, to be resonant in our bodies and in our souls. Mm. Thank you, Kathy. That lands. Shame really thinks it's certain about us. It really doesn't. It really thinks it's certain what everyone else is thinking about us. And it's that certainty, that it, it that false sense of certainty, that false sense of control. If we get hooked and lead by that, lead ourselves by and let it lead us, we're, 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 we're gone. And that is a powerful anchor to be reminded when it shows up that it's a false sense of control mm-hmm. and that we can move through it. We can metabolize the emotion and the vulnerability and we cannot control how others perceive us, how they, what they say about us. We will be misunderstood. Whether we're being honest or not, we will be misunderstood, period, no matter how we try to spin things or how honest we are. So I'm going to be thinking about that for quite some time. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy or curveball of immense loss and grief in your community can change your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that's actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict and intense emotions between your ears and with those you lead, and when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your unburdened leader coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I poured through a lot of your writings over the years, even prior to Jared's death, um, around grief and leadership. And there was this, but there was, this came up more of a recent writing, another nugget that stood with me where you said you really wrote about the paradox and the power of grieving and living at the same time. And I'm wondering if you can talk about how that embracing that paradox is different than conventional wisdom about grief. Where I came from is where a lot of people did of just the five stages of grief. 
Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's yeah. stuff. I mean, that's what, that was out there for a long time. I mean, it was pretty embedded in things. And um, and then, you know, I did some reading and she changed her position. So I misinterpreted some of the way that that model got did. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's some work about adding the sixth stage um, of mm-hmm. meaning. And so all of that to me, like one of the things I knew wholeheartedly a little bit when my dad died and then for sure when Jared died was that there's no stages there's no stages there's rhythms and I do I do really Mm. like those rhythms not I would give different language to them here and there but on the whole there are rhythms and there are pieces but it's just sometimes the rhythms are in one hour and sometimes they're over a course and they're not linear and so they're just, they're rhythms that we're just going to have to learn to live with. I'm going to be living with, I'll just use that framework a little bit, but six of those six things for the rest of my life. That's the difference is we, the language comes all the time. I hear all the time, getting through grief, getting through grief. There is no such thing. Anybody who knows grief goes, there's no such thing as getting through grief. There's learning to live with grief. Exactly. Thank you. That's a word. And I feel like, and it's okay to still hurt the waves of grief and we can't control it. The waves of grief are going to come and go and they don't, and the more we try and control them, the more they kick our ass. (laughs) And so it's about just embracing the rhythms. I love that link. (laughs) The surfing metaphors (laughs) do not lack with grief, but no, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and these rhythms. So it's, it's, it's befriending grief and learning to live with it in these rhythms when sometimes the grief is debilitating. And sometimes there's, you have a little bit more ability to breathe and get a little bit more expansive. And then it's kind of this expanding constricting sense I got from reading what you wrote about it. And it is, we love things tidy. We love things in steps. We love to just kind of go, I am recovered, period. I am over it, period. I have, you know, I've overcome, you know, period. And I'm like, dude, we overcome and we're recovered. We have moved it when we breathe our last breath, y'all. Like, it's like we need to, it does, it's so toxic. And and I'm really grateful for how you've contributed to this important conversation we have to redefine our relationship with grief and loss and on, in the shame that comes up around it in our culture. Others, we're not going to be living a life. We're going to live a zombie life, right? Yeah. And so this is, and so you wrote um, some other truths that grief has taught you and kind of like some practices. And and I just want to name some of them and have you kind of riff on what you, you wrote. You integrate WTF into your vocabulary. Can you tell me more about why that's important? Yeah. So, and I, I realized that I swore just a little bit before. And I don't know about your audience here. Okay. We can say what the fuck. I'm okay. sorry. We know it's okay. <laughs> okay. Please. <laughs> so um, yeah, I just mean that it's being honest and, and that that's the word. It's not for everybody. Everyone doesn't say what the fuck, but most people say something that is that when we're honest, that like truly like what is happening and what happened and how is this my life? And how did I turn out this way? This isn't what I thought. Like whatever the phrase is, most people, and this is not just death of a person, 
It's just like any of these deep losses. And I think that just integrating that honesty about that, that, that like feeling has been super helpful to us. Um, and one of my, one of my kids, you know, I'm really proud of my kids because I have four adult kids. Um, and, uh, you know, when Jared died, the twins were 19, almost 20. So, um, young adults. And uh, one of my sons got us um, all pink t-shirts that said, fuck grief. And so we have them. But what I like about it is it's honest because that is how we feel. Mm. And so that's what I mean by that. Like just like the grit, we don't have to sanitize the real things that cross our minds. I'm mad at Jared all the time. And I also have compassion and love and all those things. You know, it's like they both can exist. This is grieving and living at the same time. Like the contradicting things can be in there in the same space. And that's what incorporating WTF into our vocabulary really means. I really loved this one that you wrote. You wrote, you let yourself feel feelings you thought would kill you, but actually don't. Tell me more about that one. Well, I mean, I, I do just want to name that I, you know, I'm an Enneagram to adult child, an alcoholic, codependent, you know, people pleaser. And so feelings are not really my specialty um, because I'm, I'm used to other uh, mainly leaning into positive feelings. And I've learned over a couple decades, three decades, you know, how to integrate more feelings into my repertoire. But I was not prepared for the depth and magnitude of the feelings related to losing my son. And so um, just owning them and letting them be and not trying to resist them. I think that that's the or justify Mm. them or minimize them or like justify or defend is probably a good one, especially because People are afraid of such raw emotion. And I'm afraid of raw emotion. I'm not so much anymore because I have felt it. But I know I'm human and I, I don't show all those things to everybody all the time. But I have learned that there are things like you cannot control. And that's a good thing. And I think, honestly, I did know how to control a lot of those things before. And some of that got stripped away. And so just and letting them be and then not being, um, not judging ourselves for them, but honoring that mm. feeling is supposed to be. Actually, the problem is when we don't let ourselves feel it and resist it and shame ourselves or push it down because it's too scary, it actually is supposed to be that big. And that this isn't, again, I always want to keep saying it's not just loss of a kid. Like you lose these things in our lives and they're they're raw and they're real. We don't have to go, but I, I didn't lose my kid, so I shouldn't. That's that comparative suffering that... Brene Brown talks about. And this is a piece of not doing that, just like letting it be. Yeah. And when we stuff and we resist, it's a natural reflex to to kind of recoil from something painful. I, I, I think it's important to normalize that. But if we fight to avoid it at all costs, we actually end up, it becomes toxic and malignant in us versus letting it metabolize and move through the waves. And that that's, that's, that's exhausting and hard work. Um, 
You also wrote about you learn the art of practicing paradox. Tell me more about that one. Well, I always say, you know, I've been writing and talking about paradox, which is contradicting things in the same space, same body, same experience, same anything for years and years and years. But I truly didn't understand it in the same way as grief until Jared died, like Mm -hmm. how to be able to have the deepest, deepest possible grief for me as a mom and then have be able to experience joy in the same space. And this is true for most people who have lost humans, but across again, across losses, but it's like, am I allowed to feel good when I'm feeling this deep pain? All the kids, our whole family really expressed this, this uh, dilemma that we felt. And um, am I allowed to smile? I remember the very first picture. I just was like, I can't take, I'm never going to be able to take a picture again. So I'm never going to be able to smile in a picture. It's like, how could she be smiling? You know, and this was like a really strong thing. And then I remember when I just let myself do it, because in that moment, I was happy in that moment. And I had the deepest pain existing in my body and in my soul and in my family at the same time. And so I think the paradox is by, I just think the practice of paradoxing is one of the most important skills for humans to learn. And in a binary world, we live in a binary world, even though it's a non-binary world, we live in a binary system framework world still. And so that's where you can do one or the other, but you can't do both or the range of things. And so like it's the practice of paradoxing is really just living in a more non-binary world is being able to hold it all. And it's hard. And I know I say all the time, like, it's so much easier to split and split. And that's why people want to get through grief. I want to get through grief. So like, it's a ladder, you know, I just climbed up it and I got to a new place. Mm-hmm. This is big tangled mess that goes on and on and on. But in this big tangled mess, there's good, there's hard, there's beautiful, there's messy, there's freedom, there's constriction, there's like all the things. So I think for me, the practice of paradoxing has been grief has no rules guiding for me and for us and the practice of paradoxing. Mm. And humans are actually made to do it. We have more capacity than we think um, and that we've been taught. So we do have the ability to do it, but it's tough in um, we've been taught to constrict it or squeeze it out. And so, but it's actually in us. And that's one thing that I learned. It's different in theory and it's different in our heads, but when we're actually having to live it, you're like, okay, but that is possible. And people are doing it every day, all day, all the time. So it's almost like naming it and honoring it instead of pretending it's not um, as tricky as it is to do. I really appreciate that. We we really have attached a lot of moral meaning into any kind of messiness, complexity, nuance, struggle. There's a lot of moral meaning. And I see that whether it's in spiritual places, I see it in, you know, corporate, you know, professional development spaces. I see it in schools. I see it everywhere. And part of it is because we have a discomfort problem. We have a hard time sitting 
with things that we don't know and we don't understand. So we want to create a false sense of certainty, a false sense of control that you had mentioned that shame does. And so there's a lot of dots I'm, I'm connecting here. And another thing you wrote, you said you begin to own this as part of your story, but not the only story. Can you tell me more about that one? Yeah. I mean, the piece is, is that, in, you know, I'm three and a half years. We've lived on this earth three and a half years without our kid and our, and our family and here living his life the way that we hoped he would. And I, I can say this, that it's like just being able to name the reality of the grief and the pain and then to be able to keep going. Um, and to basically keep showing up in life and not run away from it. And so it's some way, in some ways, you know, some of the things that we're already been seeing, but I think a piece, you know, my kids early on say, what are you most afraid of? And, um, they said, we're really afraid of losing you guys. We are afraid. And I go like dying, you know, like, and they said, no. We're actually afraid that we're going to lose you because this is going to become everything. Like you, grief will be your defining everything. And we really, and that will define our family. It will define like our everything. And Jose and I really, and this is like day one, like it was on, it was really early. We talked really frankly together, all of us, because everyone had to travel in from other places. We were together like what what are we most, what are you most afraid of right now? And that will always stick with me because I don't want my identity to be grief. I mean, I'm happy to talk about it with you and I'm happy to be honest about it in all the places I can, but I'm a lot of other things, basically having it be part of my story, but not and part of my family story, but we have a lot of other parts of our story. And so we want to live them out. And I want my kids to be free to live them out. I want to be free to do what I love to do and not be constricted by shame and paralyzed by shame. And I want when people look at us to see more than Jared dying. But I do want them to see the truth that we lost our kid and we're trying to make it in this hard, hard world. But I don't want that to be the only thing that they see. And I can't, I love what you said. It's so good. Like we can't control what other people think or do, but I can't control showing up. And it's hard. I, you know, it takes a lot of courage. It does. And I've thought, I thought of everything, you know, I, I'm in a position I could retire. I could check out. I could move to, I don't know, a foreign country and live there now. Like there's a lot of things I could do. And it's not that it hasn't crossed my mind. Because there's parts that, you know, it's tough to have this be my story and show up in my story. But um, because it's not all my story, I don't have to have that lead every part of my life. I can have it be part of everything, but it doesn't have to lead everything in my life. Mm -hmm. But it is part of everything. It's part of all my days and all my ways, but it's not leading me in every part of my life. It's really important and a really a powerful reminder. And part of my generous assumption is at least that this is a part of you, not all of you, and doesn't lead you because of your honesty about 
your relationship with this painful part of your story with the grief, the, the echoes of grief that she keeps showing up. So it doesn't run you. And, and I'm curious that how come you chose to stay in the life that you have right now? Like you said, you could have tapped out, you could have retired, you could have just <laughs> checked out of all the things of humaning, but you're staying engaged. And I'm hearing part of it was for your kids, but you know, I think a lot of people have given you a pass to you and your husband saying, go to an island, do your thing. How come you chose to keep humaning and engaging as you are today? Because I love other humans. That's why I really love other humans. Tag nabbit. <laughs> oh, and so. Because of love. Because of love. It's healing community. It's like being with other humans, trying to live this really <laughs> crazy, weird, bizarro, hard, beautiful, wonderful, infuriating, sweet, tender life. I mean, that's why I'm still there. Right. I'm laughing because it's like, yes, we heal in community. And so for you to peace out <laughs> would have been antithetical to everything that you're about. So I'm kind of <laughs> realizing how silly my question is, but I think it's important to ask. And I'm curious what, you know, the, I've learned over the years in working with folks and even in my own in my own experiences with grief, surviving loss has its own flavor, right? And there's different flavors of loss too, like you touched on. What would you say to those that are feeling the feels that you do when you survive loss, when you when you were surviving a, a terrible loss? The feelings are real and they don't need to be judged there just are and it, it it's like we are in good company we're in good company we are not alone we can feel alone if in some of the places that we're at people are not safe enough or articulating enough or feel, like you don't feel that connection but we're not alone in loss it is a universal experience everybody has it and the other part I would say to survive as survivors is to not rank it. It's not hierarchical mm. or linear. It just is. So it's like it's on a it's not a spectrum that has really hard and less hard. It's just this big muddle, like it's all equal. It's just different. They all actually inspire the same same things in humans. And so, but they are different and they have different textures and the, um, but the, the ultimate, the same feelings I think exist with all of them. So it's like honoring that, not ranking them and not ranking ourselves in how much good we're feeling. <laughs> Cause that's the other part. It's like that a lot of times I hear people apologize a lot, you know, for crying or certain things. I'm so sorry for crying and. Like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you sweet. Those, those tears are good. They're supposed to come, you know? And so like just honoring is there's not value on what's good or bad feeling. They're just the feelings. Yeah. We've exiled so much of what makes us human and put so much moral, moral meaning on not being perfect. And that's beautiful. I, I can't not have this conversation without talking a little bit about hope. Um, I've kind of developed my own definition of hope. It's kind of like a scrappy hope. Mm. 
yeah. <laughs> especially over the last, you know, kind of last decade for myself. Um, and I'm I'm curious for you what your relationship is with hope and how it intersects with your grief. Hope is like one of my favorite words. Okay. So there's like a lot of jokes. Oh. There's a lot of jokes in the Rafi's. This is like for years and years, like Kathy's always going to make us write hope on a rock, you know, and the truth is, it's just hope. That's, that is like a piece I have. I like the word hope and I like the principle of hope. However, my definition, I love Scrappy was never neat and tidy all squared away. You know, it's just this, um, openness to the human experience. That to me is hope. Like that I still am here and that the people I'm with who have really hard losses all around, not necessarily their kid, but really hard things are here is hope. Hope can exist in the same place as the very deepest despair. And we don't have to like process the despair to get to hope. They can be there at the same time. And probably if we're processing it, there's a little bit of hope in there. And I've changed my language a little bit um, over time about uh, hope, especially in things in the world that are just so painful, like systemic things that that grieve us. The systems are so broken. And the the way that I have um, embraced this is hopeful realism. And this comes from kind of faith deconstruction stuff that happened 17 years ago when I really did shed a lot of things that um, were part of my past faith experience. And so people were like, I I wanted to be careful of not becoming super cynical about absolutely everything or super skeptical about absolutely everything um, because they both have a texture. It's not that some cynicism isn't helpful and some skepticism isn't helpful. They're good things, but I don't want them to be the only thing. And so hopeful realism helped me. And that the the realism is that people die tragically. Our bodies fail. Our relationships break. Our innocence gets lost. This world is completely inequitable. There are so many really painful things in it. That's realism. And then hopefulness for me is that we can participate in at least in our smallest systems, that's the most possible, is some change and that you can't have the structural changes without the personal. This is my friend Melvin Bray, whose 12 steps for anti-racism work we use at the refuge. You know, you can't have the personal change in systems without structural change. Personal is nothing without the structural, but you can't have structural change without the personal. One of the things that grief has taught me, it brings things that matter into exquisite focus and the things that don't matter fall aside. Mm. It's this wild, like it's almost like a vortex, right? That happens. And it's like, it's narrow. What matters and then the rest of it doesn't. What clarity do you have today? Uh, through your grief? Um, I think the biggest clarity that I have is um, really just letting go of what people think. So the clarity is who gives a shit what they think about me? Honestly, I know the life I have. I know the family I have. I know the work that I do. 
I know the community that I'm cultivated and I'm part of. And so it's like, who gives a shit? It's not that I don't care at all. It's not that it doesn't cross my mind. It's not that I don't go there, but it ultimately does not guide me. And it did guide me a lot more before Vera died. And I just lost the ability to manage that because it's hard enough just to make it. And then the second thing, it goes with it. And my son, Jared, was a philosopher, super existential. And he's like, was a unicorn, like the total future of my opinion of what, how the world could be a better place. Um, but he had a tattoo. He's, uh, it's, a, it's a quote, it's attributed to Plato, but it's, a, you know, I know more than you because I know that I don't know. And he has, I don't know, on his tattooed on his, his thigh. And my husband got that tattoo. I got a paradox. I got a paradox heart, which has helped me. I look at it almost every day. And he got, I don't know, in the same script as Jared. And that has become clear. Like, I don't know. Things I used to be clear on or thought I knew how people should live their lives or what I thought would be better for them or, you know, all those things. Like, it's so clear to me that I really don't know. There is something freeing about letting go of having to know. The power of I don't know and amazing how we project what we think is best for others too. I'm going to be sitting with that. Kathy, I could keep talking forever. You are a wealth and you're so much more, I know, than this particular part of your story. And it felt really important to have you um, come on and share this, um, knowing you. And I hope that you come back and we can rumble with more paradoxes in the future. I'm grateful that I, you know, barely made it through this. This is very tender and wholehearted. Um, feeling it. Thank you for your thank honesty. You. And thank you for creating a space for us to have these conversations. It's I feel so grateful and I feel honored to know you and to be part and to be a fellow human with you. <laughs> in this weird world. And here we are two decades later, doing the best that we yeah. can. Two decades later, yeah. doing the best we can, doing our best to create spaces for folks to be more honest. And and it's, as what does Glennon Doyle say? It's brutal. It's, it's brutal. Yes. So uh, thank you for sharing these tender parts. Thank you um, for honoring your family's story. And just thank you for the gift um, of who you are and how you lead in all areas of your life have been impacted it for the better. And I'm so grateful so many people are going to have ex- be more exposed to, to what I have known for so long. So thank you. Thank you. So grateful for you. Before you go, I want to ensure you hold some key takeaways from Kathy's tender and powerful unburdened leader conversation. But first, thank you for listening. You know, talking about grief from suicide can bring up a lot. And as I noted at the beginning, please take care of yourself. The echoes of hard conversations can continue after the end of the show. So take some notes and journal, talk to a trusted friend or mental health support. Stay curious about what came up in this conversation and continue to reflect on your relationship with grief, especially bereavement grief. Kathy reminded us how little control we have when grief strikes we have a choice to move through grief. And she noted shame's role in her bereavement by suicide and how she moved through by surrendering her false sense of control. 
And I was struck when she noted how we do grief together is a measure of how we human together. We sure have some work to do in this area. We also need to destigmatize feelings in general and the discomfort that comes up when we feel awkward or are in our pain instead of worrying about losing control or saving face. And we also need to help our nervous system navigate grief so we can move through the depths of compassion and vulnerability that surface when confronted with a lived experience of deep loss. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. And if this episode was meaningful to you, I'd be honored if you left a review, rated it, and shared it with someone who would benefit from it. Now you can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 